Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolitsich of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. Welcome to Live Players, where political scientists and strategists Sam Oberia and I discuss the key individuals with the power to alter our current society. Every week, we provide analysis of the news and case studies of live players as well as key institutions and technologies that make up the global power landscape. Let's dive in. We're here today to talk about long history. Uh, Samo, what is long history and what, uh, what got you excited about it? Why don't we give some background and then let's get into it. Long history is actually a term I coined, which describes this idea that human history has been far longer than previously believed. Uh, the normal way uh, that scholars talk about the term history is that history is the same as recorded history. And prehistory is what we have with uh, all of these vastly uh, you know, different archaeological finds, everything from stone tools to bones to, uh, you know, camp, uh, campfire sites, cave paintings, etc. I think in popular imagination, though, history is, you know, civilization, cities, uh, armies, rulers, religions, monuments, pyramids, etc. And prehistory is basically people, uh, you know, um, living in caves, uh, covered in animal hides. Uh, the basic thesis of long history, as I coined it, is that our civilized history, that is the history of complex society, is much, much older than previously believed. The normal uh, view, the consensus view of human history for the last few decades has been that as the previous ice age ended, we had a long period of climactic stability, which was followed by, um, followed by agriculture, which was then followed by complex societies. However, there've been a number of very exciting finds, including Gobekli Tepe in Eastern Turkey, that I think pushed this uh, into a much earlier history, and we can get into why. Let's do that. Talk, talk about what what are the what are the finds, and uh, what, what what do they mean? Well, basically, I wrote this article uh, for Palladium Magazine. Uh, now it's been actually a few years ago already. It was uh, published in uh, twenty twenty one, and in it, I just dove very very deeply uh, into. Uh, the archaeological literature. So I, you know, warmly recommend listeners just read that article. Um, but Gobekli Tepe is an 11,500 year old site in southeastern Turkey, where you have uh, basically monumental scale construction, hundreds of years, if not a thousand years before the earliest evidence of agriculture. So why is 11,500 such an important dateline? Well, first off, it's 6,000 years older than Stonehenge. And this monumental construction that's on top of this hill, you know, Tepe, 
um, basically means a hill in Turkish. So actually a lot of these sites, uh, if you hear about them from Turkey or even further from places like Kazakhstan and so on, they'll have a tepe at the end of the site, right? Because it's on top of a hill. So on top of this hill, 6,000 years before Stonehenge in Britain, you have uh, a circle of tall T-shaped pillars weighing many, many tons with carved images of animals, uh, also carved images of people. Nearby sites even have statues of uh, people. Um, the site is was in use for hundreds of years. It was only correctly dated after 1994. There's an interesting point to be made about archaeologists finding what they expect to find. Since the site was first excavated in the 1960s, I think by the university, by a team from the University of Chicago and the University of Istanbul. And they found these Neolithic, that is Stone Age tools, and they correctly dated the tools, but they assumed the larger construction, the larger monuments, that all of that must have been built later. They actually mistook it for a medieval cemetery. It took until 1994 uh, for uh, the archaeologist Klaus Schmidt to take a closer look at it with a new Turkish team. He was convinced that the site was much older because he had seen similar sites that were much more conventional by a few thousand years younger uh, in the same region. And then they managed to get a radiocarbon date on some deposits and it was mm -hmm. 11,500 years old. This puts it basically exactly at the end of the last ice age. That means there's no long period of climactic stability followed by agriculture, followed by building cities or monuments. People are building monuments right at the very end of the Ice Age. And you know what? We are very, very unlikely to find the oldest evidence of anything whatsoever. In fact, I would say that earlier, the earlier you go in history, right, the less likely you are to find something that is the oldest example. If our civilization was to completely collapse, future archaeologists would be lucky to find a few thousand preserved cars, even though, of course, we make millions, right? You're very, you're very unlikely to discover any given thing, let alone the oldest example of something. So the fact that we have a fairly developed structure uh, with honestly advanced architecture, something that took hundreds of people to build, that its dating is undisputed, that is in the region where we know civilization, you know, it was one of the origin centers of civilization. So these are the hills not too far from uh, the source of the Tigris and Euphrates River. All of that to me just says that, yeah, people were probably building monuments like this throughout the Ice Age. And there are actually many exciting archaeological sites that are now being investigated uh, in that same region, in the Shanliurfa area in southeast Turkey, right? The nearby, the nearest city is uh, just very near the Syrian border. And unlike Syria, I think Turkey is stable enough to allow for such digs. But I'm pretty sure that if we dug in Syria and Iraq, in northern Iraq and in northern Syria, specifically looking for sites that are 11,000 years old, rather than, you know, the sort of Sumerian and Babylonian stuff that we normally might try to find in those regions, uh, I'm pretty sure we would find many more sites like this. I don't think this was an exceptional site. I think it is a remarkable site today, 
but it wasn't exceptional at the time. I think we dug up what was probably the equivalent of a cathedral of this ancient complex society, and I don't think it was the only cathedral. Is uh, is this damning for uh, other uh, sort of archaeologists or, or historians, or how how have people responded to this uh, thesis, or, or how might they respond, or what does it threaten, if anything? Well, uh, what's very important to know is that consensus moves very slowly in academic circles, so it is something that has been debated and disputed for the last 10 to 20 years. And it has taken since 1994 for the consensus to even settle on the appropriate dating, let alone any sort of revision of general theories. I think for the most part, uh, people are sticking to the old theory of post-agricultural accumulation as the origin of civilization. And they have not yet begun looking at many other hypotheses. Um, you know, Klaus himself, before he, I think, passed away in the early 2000s, advocated for a theory where perhaps religion came first and agriculture came after religion. So that the first, these, you know, hunter gatherers would uh, organize into complex religion, build these temple sites, etc. And then in order to feed the workforce, they would pick up agriculture. That's like the most interesting deviation uh, that they've really uh, proposed on the basis of this and other finds in the region. I do think they are hesitant to do a more radical revision because there are no career benefits to being the one archaeologist with a crazy theory. Digs are expensive, right? They take both skilled labor and unskilled labor. So when you're using unskilled labor, basically having people move dirt, because if you try to use heavy machinery, you're going to damage stuff, uh, they might steal stuff too. This is a known and endemic problem in Egyptology where, you know, things might be found and might actually be stolen and hit the black market. Uh, it was also a problem um, in Iraq, for example, right? When uh, the invasion happened in 2004, uh, the Antiquities Museum was looted. And it didn't have like golden pharaonic masks or not at least not too many of them. It just had these like, you know, small uh, stone statues and very, and clay tablets, etc. But these still make a decent amount on uh, the antiquities market, which is a great trade, a great international trade in these sort of illegal antiquities that goes into the hands of private collectors all around the world. Like, honestly, it is its own kind of peculiar flex to say, have something and, you know, display it in your living room. And it's like 9,000 years old or whatever. It's a flex, right? Um, but it's also one of the drivers of entropy, of entropy for the stuff that is fine, for the rare things that do survive. So that means you need to have security at your archaeological site. And skilled labor, well, you need to correctly date things. You need to know how to collect samples, how to document stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no way around it. It's a labor-intense process all around. And this means you are always struggling for funding, and universities and most other bureaucratic organizations will only fund stuff that looks very normal. And archaeologists, at the end of the day, are not in the business of hypothesizing what human nature is or what human civilization is or what big picture history is. Their job, in a way, is to just dig up and accurately document and accurately interpret sites. And that in itself is different. It means that they're very empirical driven. So even if their old hypothesis that explained, 
you know, the origin of civilization and so on is overturned, they struggle to find alternative, you know, they, there's no career reward for proposing bold ideas of totally new places to dig. It's very reactive. You, you chance upon a site, you find a site, right? You don't go and seek out a site. Uh, there was a whole different generation of archaeology that did do this uh, in the late 19th century when it was almost kind of like an adventure discipline um, with people setting out on their own funds or on raised funds to dig up Troy, uh, which is what Schliemann did. Uh, and, you know, today archaeologists, um, you know, they don't like him because, for example, at some parts of the excavation, he would even use dynamite to remove dirt. But, you know, at the time, dynamite was high tech. Um, I think a modern Schliemann would be much less objectionable since I think that if you could convince, uh, you know, an eccentric tech uh, billionaire, you know, that you can, you can always have some of them pick up the best hobbies, right? Like immortality or whatever. Uh, Brian Johnson is a great example. If someone picked this up today and decided to be a modern day Schliemann, I honestly think there are amazing things that could be done with the use of drones in archaeology. Uh, because there's already been such progress. So really, I think that a totally new funding model is needed before we could really undertake hypothesis-driven archaeology. So instead of reactive archaeology, where we dig something and we say, ah, this is the oldest X found, X found so far, and I'm not going to speculate how old they might be, and I'm not going to speculate where else to dig, we could go into hypothesis-driven archaeology and uh, or hypothesis history, a history hypothesis informed archaeology, a longer history, and we could fund uh, hypothesis digs where you just fund a dig at an extremely promising site with the intent to try to see, could we find something there? Can we find a lost city? Um, and by the way, there are many, many lost cities uh, just in the, you know, period of 3000 BC where we don't know where they could be and they continue to be found right? The, the Hittite capital of Hattusa is still being dug up. And in the middle of the 19th century, people had no idea that the Hittites even existed. Uh, for every single decade of the last 150 years, we have discovered a new several thousand year old civilization somewhere around the world. Like I can give examples like in the, in the 1970s, near the Oxus River in Central Asia, they discovered the Oxus civilization. Um, which is, uh, you know, its own distinct, though not very well-known, settled agricultural society with truly remarkable art and large walled cities. Actually, one of the cities has a grid layout, which is just shocking, right? That's not something you would expect 5,000 years ago, uh, making a contemporary of the more well-known Sumerians and Babylonians later, and also the Indus Valley civilization. Yeah, and... Nat Friedman is uh, doing his own sort of archaeology project, sort of uh, just to give an example of uh, sort of, you know, independent people who are producing archaeology, uh, 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 sort of uh, searches and uh, putting up money for them. So maybe we'll see more. I mean, as a segue from that, like, why does it matter um, in the sense of say more about some of the implications of if what you say in your article is is correct in terms of our new understanding of this history of archaeology or or even your hypotheses about what else we could discover? How, what, what assumptions rest upon our current understanding of history of archaeology um, that would be challenged? And thus, would we have a different like what, what different views might we have about uh, about society as, as a result? Like, 
what, what are some of the ways in which it, which it matters or makes a difference you feel beyond sort of the trivia of it? Nat Friedman's project, by the way, is amazing because it extends the narrow definition of history. Uh, if successful, it will recover uh, new previously unreadable texts from uh, the libraries uh, preserved by the volcanic ash uh, at Heraclium. Uh, the scrolls are far too fragile to be unrolled, but if you scan them and you use software to reconstruct the texts, we might uh, recover completely lost Greek plays, uh, scientific papers, uh, histories and legal texts in Latin. And, you know, honestly, I think we underestimate still even classical antiquity. Consider for a moment that Archimedes was using essentially a form of calculus to calculate water displacement for uh, a boat and that Heron was building prototype steam engines. What else have we forgotten about that era of 300 BC to 200 AD? when one could argue Western civilization first emerged and uh, only to then fall and be transformed. And that brings me to the first implication of a much longer history. I think we have seen many cycles of civilizations rise and fall. I don't think history is a ratchet or a simple upwards curve. I think it has periods where we have compounding and accelerating returns. We have rapid technological, economic, social, scientific advancement. And then for reasons we do not yet understand, all past civilizations, not yet counting our own, have undergone stagnant periods. Uh, a great example of this would be medieval China, where for many centuries, the standard of living not only was higher than in Europe, but was improving at a faster rate than in Europe. And you would see amazing things like in the 12th, in 12th century China, you would have clock towers, right? So public timekeeping using mechanical clocks, right? Um, and you would also see stuff like uh, outwardly expanding trade networks in Southeast Asia. Um, actually, some of the overseas Chinese minorities in countries like Indonesia and Vietnam and so on, they actually traced their roots, roots hundreds of years ago to some of these rare Chinese dynasties that were interested in overseas trade rather than isolationist. Uh, regardless, that point leads to a very different view of our own future. You know, maybe we're on the cusp of the singularity. Maybe our friends at OpenAI or DeepMind or Anthropic are going to break human history and rupture into a new era, perhaps a deeply post-human era. Or maybe Western civilization is not an exception. And, you know, today, one could even argue that a place like China is part of Western civilization. After all, they adopted the modern nation state from the European model. They adopted Marxism from the Russian and German model. Uh, they're adopting uh, Silicon Valley style startups from the American model. It's hard to find something that's not truly Western about it. Even the totalitarian side, right? Like the party state is a Soviet and, and European innovation in political science in the 19th and early 20th century. We might not like it, but it's hardly the same thing as like uh, what some historians called oriental despotism of a large imperial bureaucracy centuries ago. I think, uh, you know, Xi is more a Western style dictator than he is a Chinese emperor. And I think in the big picture version of history, that really matters, right? Um, it's, it's, uh, it reminds me of how uh, some of the states in 
and around the Roman Empire actually looked awfully Roman, even if not conquered by the Romans themselves, just because there was such an efficient military, economic, and cultural package, and elites always want to imitate the most prestigious thing around. So yeah, imagine that history is hundreds of thousands of years old, with many civilizations rising and falling, where things like the Bronze Age collapse 1000 BC, and the fall of the Roman Empire, or the end of the Han Dynasty, these are just normal occurrences, right? And long periods of stagnation, like hundreds or thousands of years of little economic growth in the Nile River Delta are also normal. And just because we have industrial society doesn't mean uh, we have escaped this cycle. I think that's a deeply uncomfortable thought. And I think it its implications are that we might actually have a far longer future ahead of us than we think. When we look at the future, we imagine infinite compounding growth, which means that we hit the singularity either in six months, right? This, this exponential of extreme acceleration in returns. We either hit it in like six months or six years or 60 years or 600 years, but it's definitely us that reaches it. And I'm like, well, you know, at any point we might yet see a cessation of this. And then we might see a long period of stagnancy and then our civilization might fall. And then, you know, the, the singularity hypothesis might still be true, but it could be that, you know, a thousand years from now, people are going to talk about the lost civilization of the USA and how they had large language models that were rudimentary AI. Uh, but really it's interesting why they didn't apply those models to solve their problems and save themselves. And they might wonder in the same way we wonder about Heron's steam engine and the Roman Empire, why that didn't cause an industrial revolution, right? As we would understand it. Fascinating. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. So what have we learned about why civilizations do, 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 do rise and fall? What, what are the common patterns or trends? I know you've done a lot of uh, work into this, but if, if it's more common, what, what can we, than we think perhaps, what can we appreciate about or understand about why it happens? Well, I think one of the more interesting points is that um, there are generally two sorts of large phenomena that affect civilization on this macro scale. I think you can have a fairly centralized and dysfunctional uh, government where there is a military hegemon that is militarily overextended, overtaxes, uh, and essentially dominates its immediate area uh, to the point that it starts immiserating it over a period of centuries, right? Roman society was poorer in the fourth century AD before the fall of the Roman Empire than it was in the second century AD. Um, that leaves it eventually fragile 
and eventually it becomes incapable of either fielding armies or uh, continuing, uh, you know, fulfilling fiscal needs. Uh, that can lead to a total military collapse or military exhaustion. If I were to be somewhat playful, I would say that perhaps the collapse of the Soviet Union is a classical example of this, where you have a large Eurasian military empire engaged in an arms race. The arms race becomes unaffordable, produces a political crisis, and then eventually there's political dissolution. So even though there are no invading barbarians in that model, the hegemony is broken because it's economically unsustainable. So that, that'll be pattern number one. And then I think pattern number two uh, that I would point to is the collapse of complex trade networks where you might have a relatively complex technological system and interdependency between several societies. And then, you know, there might be a flood, a famine, a uh, volcanic, volcanic eruption, a barbarian invasion here or there. But usually uh, the trade system of several societies has enough resilience that any one trade partner can be replaced. But if too many shocks hit the system, uh, you might have a vicious cycle where diseconomies of scale hit very rapidly. The Bronze Age collapse around 1000 BC in the Eastern Mediterranean saw societies as diverse as the Mycenaeans, uh, Minoans, Assyrians, uh, various Canaanite uh, cities, the Egyptians, all undergo a simultaneous crisis. Why? Bronze Age society was deeply dependent on long distance, one could even say with most recent evidence, intercontinental trade, right? In fact, there's evidence that tin was shipped into places like modern day Cyprus and Turkey from as far away as Afghanistan and Britain. There's also evidence even of trade of bronze uh, for various um, amber artifacts and so on up to northern Scandinavia. I'm sure there are are yet undiscovered trade routes that went into West Africa and East Africa, and I'm sure also into central Siberia. The archaeology of this long distance trade suffers from the same problems uh, that you might have with the archaeology of monumental sites, except it's even more difficult, right? Anything you bother trading long distance is valuable. Anything that is valuable, even if lost, people will try to recover it. So this is why shipwrecks are an important source of uh, information for trade uh, in history. Uh, and that means that it's unlikely, you know, to stay buried in, in that sense. Um, it's very much likely to be reused, melted down, etc. So copper, for a variety of reasons, tends to not be found in the same deposits as tin. And you need to mix copper and tin for bronze. So the coal international economy of the ancient world was arguably based on providing copper and tin to the places that consumed and needed the most bronze, both for their tools and for their weapons. Societies like Egypt, societies like early Assyria, societies like the Babylonians and so on. Disrupt that trade and the society collapses. Some people have proposed that a sufficiently serious war between the United States and China might destroy most of the world's chip fabs and it could take decades to recuperate right? Um, I'm not sure how much of a collapse this would be economically, but were it to happen, that would be a mild example of lots and lots of technological dependencies breaking because international trade was disrupted and this extreme specialization where 
every single society that fails sort of produces more cascading failures through the system. So a kind of rapid impoverishment. We mentioned earlier in our last episode that Henry Kissinger was a student of history. You know, there are people in government and foreign policy who are deeper historians than, than others. For the people who really don't have an understanding of, of, of any of these sort of civilizations that you mentioned, um, what do you think they're, they're missing out or it causes them to uh, tr- you know, understand differently or act differently as a, as a result? I think it's a check on human hubris. Every time in history, we've said this time is different and we are always somewhat correct and somewhat wrong. Um, I think that one of the deepest and most interesting things one can learn by looking at ancient societies, in addition to the check in hubris, is this view of what is human nature and what do humans respond to? And what even is, for example, religion? What is commerce? What is a government? You know, there's interesting archaeological finds uh, for giant breweries in ancient Egypt owned by the pharaoh. And then you realize, wait, the production of alcohol and the enforcement of a royal monopoly was probably a significant source of revenue. And then you realize, wait, taxation can occur in a number of different ways. And that's when you start to realize that, you know, things like inflation or things like state-owned companies can also be a form of taxation, even if they don't go from your paycheck, right? They're a form of extraction from society. So you could get that same insight just thinking through economics, but I think there's something very uh, provocative and creative about comparing these things. Or, for example, there is this interesting limit to the, you know, how, how secular can a society truly be? I've often been playful and said that even modern states, such as the United States, are often, you know, very much beholden to a kind of civic religion and mythos. In a previous episode, I mentioned the nuclear football, right? Like the president's nuclear football opens it, presses the button, the world is over. Any other society, if we read this story about their ruler, we would classify that as a religious myth. In our society, we just, we just take it to be true. Like I could be provocative even and say, we don't know it's true. We actually never tested launching thousands of ICBMs. Like we've tested the nukes, we've tested the rockets. Testing the full ICBM system has actually not been done very much, especially after the weapons ban. So we don't even know if the doomsday machine works. I don't think we should test the full doomsday machine. But, you know, again, archaeologists, archaeologists a thousand years from now might look at our ICBMs and say, you know, our computer and AI simulation show these things would have worked at a 10 to 20 percent rate. These guys were just cargo culting more advanced technology than what they had. These are like, you know, like Easter Island, uh, Easter Island statues. And they spent so much of their resources, both the American culture and the Soviet civilization that collapsed 50 years before the American one collapsed. They both, you know, really overinvested into the semi-fictional technology. I don't think that's likeliest to be the case, but I would put like five to 10%. That's how the future will see us. So we have a civic mythology too. We have rituals, we have scapegoating, right? Uh, the, you know, the president is responsible for the economy, whether or not he does something about the economy. 
it's very interesting. It's, you know, maybe the economy is under, at least for some presidents, the economy is more like weather than their company, right? They're not, they have very few actuators to shape the economy, right? Yet we still all hold them accountable. It's one of the strongest things in presidential polls. So yeah, there is an element of a deep mythos there. And, you know, a lot of uh, startups play with on the, on the thin border between profit making and myth making. And the two are very intimately connected because of branding and uh, also because of talent acquisition. So when we deeply understand ancient history, it's interesting to think about where are areas where we take lessons and say, hey, we're, 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 we're like people back then. And where are areas where we say, hey, actually, we've evolved in, in some way, either culturally or even, even biologically, and we shouldn't over-rotate. On, on lessons from the from the past because there there are lots of things that that people in, in you know in history have been doing for a very long time that that worked that we don't do today um, or that we do differently today and maybe maybe that sometimes it's a lesson that hey maybe there's uh, we should have more sympathy for the, for those or you know more be more open to to ways people have acted in the past uh, or or other times it's it's we say hey actually the way they did it wasn't the best way to do it. Um, and we have figured out something new, although that's, that seems like a high bar to have that, have that perspective. I'm, I'm curious how, how you think about making sure not to over rotate or, or when to, to not listen to, to history. I think, um, you know, we shouldn't use history just as a negative example. I think that's its own fallacy because there's a massive diversity of ancient civilizations, truly very different societies and different economic models, different religious models, political models. Um, I think the full range of human behavior remains to be explored. If we had a thousand planets or a billion years of history, then maybe we would have a true understanding of the limits of what humans can do. I don't think we're near those limits yet. I would view history more as a positive example in the sense that, look, this society was static for a thousand years, and then they did something new and something amazing. Or, wow, this this is not possible in our society. How did they do it, right? You have these remarkable feats of coordination and achievement with much more primitive technology, with much less wealth that we struggle to consider how we could do today. Um, consider how competent the U.S. government was in the execution of the Manhattan Project. If there was a need for a Manhattan Project today, I don't think we would be as good at it. We, we would probably spend much more on a comparable project. And that means that there is something in terms of either civic citizens virtue or in the structure of a much smaller, then much smaller, leaner, more talent driven, more meritocracy driven bureaucracy that we've forgotten as a, as a social technology, right? I think thinking of societies in history as, you know, each civilization having like five to 20 social technologies, that is unique social practices that allow them to organize humans in new and interesting ways. I think that's very fruitful. You know, the Roman concept of law and the Anglo-Saxon concept of law and the Islamic concept of law and the Chinese one, well, they're all law, but they have really different principles behind them. 
And, you know, we could write some fun science fiction and be like, well, you know, a universe where startup cultures first started in Riyadh and all startup equity is constrained by Sharia law. And, you know, there are various limits on when you can go into debt or not. And this caused this kind of technology to be pursued rather than a different one, et cetera, et cetera. Like it might sound funny, but um, it is it is really it is really deeply true that how humans organize themselves produces very different externalities i talked earlier about you know the negative externalities of military overextension right there are positives to military overextension too uh for example large scale military overextension depending on the tax system, can result in a flourishing of trade. No one ever accused the Mongols of being gentle, and they certainly destroyed many, many Central Asian civilizations that honestly were settled peoples, right? Even today, Kazakhstan is a low population density country. Possibly the population is no bigger there than it was before the Mongol invasion, where we have evidence of all these cities. Uh, and, you know, in China, they weren't so destructive. But either way having a single military ruler and it, their authority not being based on religion made religious pluralism possible. And secondly, them not being a settled bureaucratic elite meant that their taxation of the trade routes was very light. So the Silk Road flourished under the Mongols because at the end of the day, they would just use their very mobile forces to keep trade trade routes open, overland caravan routes open, and they would take a fairly light tax once the conquering was done, right? And these, again, these structural differences matter immensely. And today, I think we are still observing the play out of differences in social technology between, say, the United States and China, even though, as I say, I think, uh, you know, China, let's put it this way, China and the U.S. in the big picture of history are 80 to 90% similar societies. And I think that that might be also a provocative thing to say. Say more about that, or just because it doesn't feel intuitive. So how, how so? Well, for starters, um, you know, um, do they both have the position of a CEO? How are companies run? Do both have boards overseeing the CEO? Um, do both have, uh, you know, an FDA or an FDA equivalent? Do they have a food quality controls? Um, do they have a Navy, Air Force, and, uh, you know, uh, an army? What are the ranks used in those? How similar or dissimilar is the chain of command? How do they do weapons procurement? Do they have defense contractors? What is a defense contractor, right? It's a, it's a private organization making arms for the state. It's not the state itself making arms. Uh, do they have software startups? Um, do they uh, have an interoperable enough business culture that you can have American IP built in Chinese factories? Um, do they debate socialism versus capitalism? Yes. Which sources do they cite? Actually, they cite a lot of the same sources when debating even domestically within China. They'll cite Western economists, right? In America, we don't yet cite Chinese economists, but like, again, 80 to 90 percent of the core economic theory is actually the same. We're just disagreeing about the last 10 or 20%. Uh, even the arguments that say, you know, it, it gets very subtle, for example, even the view of the role of the press, right? Where 
America has freedom of speech in China, they would even say that they have their own version of freedom of speech in a more limited sense. It's, it doesn't quite exist the way we would think of it, but they would point to a few things that can be said that couldn't be said in the past, right? Um, and they would perceive themselves also in a way as a democratic society. It's just that they would say that, oh, our representative system is different than your representative system. It's not like the people are in charge in the United States either. You guys vote for members of one or two parties. We vote for members of one party. Is that really that big a difference? Right? There are elections held in China at various levels, right? So again, uh, you could say that America has a functional democracy and China has some vestigial elements of like people's authority, but they pay lip service to those. Domestically, they pay lip service to those. They grant legitimacy. So wait, actually, 80 to 90% of the sources of political legitimacy and authority are the same. The Chinese Communist Party should rule because it's delivering on the Chinese dream because young Chinese are living better than older Chinese. They're both becoming large middle class societies. People focus on the Chinese bullet trains uh, between the big cities, but I would rather point to the car sales. It is now typical in China to have a car. Like that's a world of difference from 30 years ago. So I think the fact that they both are becoming car-oriented commuter cultures, right? This introduces this strange distinction between where you live and where you work. Like, we, we can continue listing these similarities, and none of them, I think, are actually set in stone. All of them could be organized differently, perhaps not as efficiently, uh, but there, there truly is a deep similarity there. Like, consider reading or, or re watching interviews with uh, Chinese entrepreneurs. Like literally the founder of TikTok uh, cites the lean startup. Like, like yeah. actually just cites the same Silicon Valley books that it's entrepreneurs here might. Yeah, right? I'm pretty sure if you ask them what they think of Balaji's network state, they would have an opinion, yeah. right? Like they, they, they are part of and an offshoot of American Silicon Valley culture. It's because a lot of them studied in the United States. There was just this period where a lot of the people that studied returned. I've heard in the most recent numbers that that has stopped, that that was like a pre-G phenomena. But that pre-G phenomena was enough for so many giants, DJI and so on. It's like, it's remarkable. These are really good tech companies and they're run in within the political constraints of the Chinese system, much as an American one would be. Uh, the main difference is that, you know, while uh, Elon Musk might receive bad press and uh, President Biden might harass him through the FTC, uh, Jack Ma, when Jack Ma got uppity, he sort of disappeared for a while and then returned back in public very politely and very restrained. So let's say that the controls on uppity tech CEOs are harsher in China significantly. But uh, the very fact that Jack Ma felt fr uh, free in the first place to speak up on problems with the Chinese Communist Party, even from a purely technocratic level, not like we should abandon CCP rule, but like, oh, yeah, this is run inefficiently. We should run this like a startup, et cetera, et cetera. All these same critiques that we might have here in San Francisco of D.C., right? He said a lot of the same critiques with Chinese characteristics, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, I'm going to segue to, to, to some, something else but that's, that's related to sort of, you know, 
where our conversation around civilizations falling. I was having a dinner with a couple of effective altruists recently, and and they were lamenting that EA had shifted from sort of you know trying to solve malaria to trying to address sort of existential risk and this focus on long termism. I'm, I'm curious what, what you think about that that shift, but but also I'm curious if you were the head of existential risk or if you were you know the one thinking about hey how do we pre- uh, prevent our civilization from from falling where would you spend uh, your time and money in terms of where, where do you think is the, the highest leverage point to, to focus? Yeah, I think we need to diversify our portfolio, you know, metaphorically and literally. Um, I think that this has been a topic we've implicitly touched on in previous episodes. Um, I, I think we're under generating live players and I would try to do anything at all possible to encourage and facilitate the creation of more people who have this unique drive that is not correlated to what the mainstream is doing. Now, um, I think if I were to look at these interventions, I would highlight the Teal Fellowship as a remarkably successful program. And this was at the time considered a crazy diss of the university system. What, give kids $100,000? I guess post-pandemic, that would be more like two or 300000 Inflation has done what it's done. Um, to drop out of college, well, you're ruining their future, right? They need that education, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, as a personal financial choice, it's still, you know, some of them went on to create companies and and do amazing things, um, make, you know, billions of dollars. And, And that's remarkable already, even at the low rate. But even if it wasn't the best personal choice for a lot of those kids, I think we should be, less overinvested into the university system because the university system is something that makes all high human capital shaped the same way. Everyone who goes through that process through that network is sort of a little bit converged to what the ideas of their era of academia are. Um, I would, I would also invest more into basically novel energy sources and I would allow for more government experimentation within the Western world, right? It's sort of like, yeah, democracy is a great moral achievement, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it sure would be nice if we knew how to build a new city, right? Like maybe we need special economic zones. Maybe the EU needs special economic zones. Um, maybe we need uh, corporate run cities in addition to our democratically run cities. Maybe we need, um, maybe we need to actually back seasteading as a serious effort because the USA, for example, we could say that US naval dominance is only assured for the next 40 to 50 years. And actually it's in US interest to privatize the international seas and allow their settling and exploitation because that's going to bolster and prolong the naval hegemony and so on and so on. I think also Military overextension is a significant problem for the U.S. The U.S. is fabulously wealthy compared to most the rest of the world. But, you know, its economy is at this point roughly comparable to the size of China's economy. China is poorer per capita, but whatever measure you take, uh, China is comparable, sometimes larger in, say, production, sometimes smaller in, in terms of various cap- forms of capitalization. Uh, I don't think, you know... When it comes to military overextension, it's always a relative game. It's never an absolute game. Meanwhile, wealth is an absolute game. So this sort of relative zero-sum thing can eat up even trillions of dollars, right? 
and can, of course, eat up also, which is much more important, hundreds of thousands of lives as well. Well put. Talk about fertility for a second in terms of how big is uh, that a risk sort of, you know, of, of population collapse? Uh, how, how big is that a risk of a, of a dark age? You know, Robin Hanson has been sounding the alarm recently. Um, is, is that something that you take seriously that in the next, you know, 100 years or, or, or something we could have, you know, something of a, of a, of a dark age? Um, and uh, if so, is there anything that could be done about sort of the underpopulation um, concerns? Or what are your thoughts there? No, I think... Um... I think it is a real concern, and I will point out that past civilizations have undergone mysterious periods of low fertility as well. And it sure would be neat if we had an easy answer. For example, the liberal answer, let's say, was higher uh, wealth transfers and social services to assist mothers in the workplace. And that was sort of tried in Sweden and so on, and it helps a little bit, but not enough to put fertility above 2.1. And then the socially conservative answer is like, we need to find God, we need to be religious, we need to be more modest, we need to ban pornography. Like on the margin, maybe this helps. But again, East Asian society is far less feminist than we are, uh, yet their fertility is even lower. And Iran, you know, it's, it's very, um, you know, very fundamentalist. It has a religious police, yet somehow bearded guys harassing you in the streets to cover up. Um, that seems to not increase Iranian fertility. Iran's fertility is 1.7 babies, even though it's like still a very poor country. Um, something is happening with regard to fertility. All of the mainstream theories are at least somewhat wrong. We don't know which policy interventions can raise fertility, at least raise it enough in a cost-effective enough way. We are about to fight a really nasty culture war over fertility. It's going to center on the feminism versus anti-feminism. I think both feminism and anti-feminism are actually a distraction. But uh, try saying that as we inevitably become polarized over this and ideologically at a, a breaking point. And then finally, the worst problem our civilization might encounter is we might recast our own decline and failure as a success because we believe, and in fact, probably do have serious environmental problems like global warming, which could be solved, I think, with better technology and social organization. We might say, ah, the world's population shrinking is a good thing. We are going to recover and we're going to let nature recover. And this is going to make the far future even better. And we can just totally rationalize being slightly poorer every year as we get older every year and as we get smaller every year to the point where the, the pressures are so intense. Like the political problem with an inverted age pyramid is that all the voters and many of the workers and many of the soldiers who are old outnumber the young and they're all in favor of taxing the young. We previously talked about indirect forms of taxation that aren't income taxes, right? Like we talked about state-owned monopolies, we talked about, um, you know, inflation and so on. The political pressure, you know, most societies through human history have been like age pyramids where 
lots of young people, small number of old people. As a species, I think we have always been gerontocratic. That is, for structural and biological reasons, we always give power to the old. But that was counterbalanced with the majority of people being young. Now we are entering into societies that are columns or inverted age pyramids where most of the people are old. You know, it might seem on paper like, oh, you know, the old retire and don't work. Therefore, the salaries and compensation of the young rises. And while the young are taxed, you know, to provide for the old, the taxation doesn't increase more than their wages do. But I think that's, that's incorrect, especially because you can have, you know, we talk about Zoomers and millennials doing quiet quitting during and after COVID. I think boomers have been quiet quitting for a while. I think it's retire in place. We could call it like mise en place. We could be like retire en place, right? Mm -hmm. You are on the payroll. You're showing up to the office. You're not doing that much. Your intern is doing a lot. Your intern is actually doing 80% of your work, opening your emails, checking your PDFs, whatever, right? All the stuff that makes no, you don't even bother to learn. Who's really doing the work and who's being taxed? If we think of it not as purely, you know, the IRS harassing you, but as extraction, I think the old are taxing the young. And if the old are taxing the young, and if we adopt as a civilization a misanthropic ideology where human life is bad and where we are bad for the planet and where fewer of us is good, by the way, that's great. Instead of saying we failed to raise fertility and our deficit is rising, you can say we've reduced carbon emissions this year by 5%. It's not that our tax base is smaller than 5%. We've reduced carbon emissions by 5% this year. We're the greenest country in the world. Right. Like you could say that we like, you know, Germany has more forests now than it's had in 400 years <laughs> because the land gets literally abandoned. Right. The um, my last questions are I'm, I'm curious what, why you don't see or why you see anti-feminism and feminism as a distraction, because it does seem like the, the value of which we put upon motherhood does influence sort of, you know, um, how, how many kids th th they'll have. And then also, uh, just side note, I'm curious, you, we, we mentioned Mongolians earlier, uh, Genghis Khan, of course, had uh, t tons of kids. I'm curious why we don't see, given the technology is there um, and the problem is so acute, we don't see more people just dedicated to having dozens or even hundred plus, especially rich people, people can afford it, and, and or government even sponsoring them, just saying, hey, I'm going to I'm going to make, I'm going to have tons more kids than, than average to make a statement or, or to actually, you know, make, make a difference. Yeah. I think this would require people to be willing to stand out within their subculture. Uh, the few high fertility subcultures that are religious, I think work because it's very much a communal thing. It's not just that you have babies and you're the weirdo with eight babies. It's like everyone, everyone has eight babies and the weirdo is the one with two babies or no babies. All your friends getting married at about the same time is a known social phenomena. I'm sure you've seen this happen where like in a friend group, there's like a year where like half of them get married or something, right? Or like some of them have babies and then they start asking the other couples sort of like trying to recruit them into basically their hobby from a social perspective. It's like, Hey, are you guys going to have kids? Like what school are you going to send them to? Oh, come on, go, go have kids, etc." Uh, there is a social contagion effect there. So I think what you would need is, you know, exceptional individuals that made fertility their hobby. Like I think Elon Musk right now, because of his pro-fertility statements, 
I think he probably is indirectly responsible for the birth of tens of thousands of babies, right? Not, not his babies, but tens of thousands, just because people were like probably persuaded by his arguments. People have, a lot of people have never heard the idea that having babies might be good for society, good for the economy, even good for the environment, actually. Like that argument has not been made. So I think making the argument matters and then engineering cohort effects where the whole social graph has kids at the same time. There's some sort of environmental marker that causes people to be like, oh, you know, me and my friends didn't used to have kids. Now we have kids. Now we're adults. Maybe we need a rite of passage of some kind, a sort of a ritual that you have become a parent. Maybe we need weddings. You know, baby showers, people make fun of them, but they're actually a step in that direction. There's a big celebration of, of new life, of a couple becoming parents. It used to be the case that weddings were implicitly that, but uh, since weddings and, uh, you know, relationship and having babies have become more and more decoupled, maybe we just need, you know, a group celebration, not just of the babies, but of the parents, right? And that, that causes the social contagion effect. If you're invited to a baby shower, maybe you want a baby shower. Uh, I want to be mindful of time. So maybe we should wrap here. Unless was there, did you comment on the feminism, anti-feminism thing? I think it's to a significant degree of distraction, as I said earlier. I think that uh, there's elements of truth in anti-feminism and there's some elements of truth in feminism as well. I think anti-feminism has significant insights about the fact that our society is not just patriarchal, it is simultaneously matriarchal. And there does exist matriarchal, that is women held power. And I think feminism has deep insights that, yes, actually, women in the workforce are more economically productive. And unless you super constrain their freedom, you're going to get some feminist like outcomes just out of lots of women working in the economy. So are you really willing to be a 50% poorer society? That's an interesting question. So I think feminism and anti-feminism have this like very interesting synthesis that could be made, but no one's incentivized to make it. Yeah. Is it a trade-off between current GDP and future GDP among other things? <laughs> mm. I think that's a perhaps interesting way of putting it. It's certainly in a way, if we take a policy that makes us wealthier, but reduces fertility, we are eating the seed corn. And until recently, economists like Robin Hansen, I think they assumed we could buy seed corn from the rest of the planet. I think their assumption was that, oh, it's okay if we do this, because if we're a wealthy society, we attract more immigrants and the planet's overpopulated anyway, right? We're going to get seed from elsewhere to plant in our soil. Um, that seems to no longer be quite as certain. And that's why they're sounding the alarm. Let's, um, let, let, let's wrap on that. This has been a fantastic conversation on long history, why civilizations fall, and uh, learnings as it relates to, to preventing that today. Uh, Samo, uh, pleasure as always, and until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Live Players. Please subscribe, leave a review, and check out Samo's excellent newsletter, The Bismarck Brief, for more rigorous analysis of key individuals, institutions, or industries. Live Players is a production of Turpentine, the podcast network behind Econ 102 with Noah Smith and Moment of Zen.